we prepare to hear God's holy word, read and proclaimed, let us turn to the Lord again in prayer as we ask him to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray together. Into our darkness come, Lord Jesus, and shine the light of your love through your word. Illumine for us your paths of righteousness, and help us by your spirit now to turn to you to find life. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen. Our scripture reading comes from the gospel according to Luke chapter 1 verses 67 through 80. This again, as we read last week, is Zechariah's song, uh, otherwise known as the Benedictus. Hear the word of the Lord, it is written. With his father, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Last Sunday, we began looking at Zechariah's song here in the first chapter of Luke's gospel. We should remember that Zechariah has been mute since the beginning of the narrative when the angel Gabriel appeared to him in the temple and announced to him that his wife Elizabeth would bear a son and his name would be John. Zechariah, if you recall, was astonished by this message Gabriel delivered to him and questioned it. So Gabriel told Zechariah that he would be unable to speak until it came to pass because he had doubted. Now, we don't want to fail to recognize what this song is. This is Zechariah's first words upon the loosing of his tongue and the opening of his mouth. He's been unable to speak for months Finally, he recovers his voice, and Luke tells us that he spoke, blessing God. He burst into song, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. God is faithful to his word. And so Zechariah sings praise to God, not just for God's faithfulness to him personally, but for God's faithfulness to Israel. 
And last Sunday, as we looked through the first half of Zechariah's song, verses 68 through 75, we saw how Zechariah lays out for us how God would fulfill his covenant promises through the coming Messiah. The promises that God had made to Abraham and David were coming to fruition. God was going to redeem his people and deliver them from their enemies. This Sunday, we move on to the last half of Zechariah's song, verses 60, or 76 through 79, in which Zechariah turns his attention to his newborn son, John, in his ministry as the prophet of the Most High, as he is called here. But Scripture will testify that John is not merely a prophet. He is more than a prophet, as Jesus himself will say of John in the seventh chapter of Luke's gospel. You see, John had a special role as the last of the prophets who were sent to proclaim the coming Messiah. As Zechariah sings in verse 76, John would go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And John's role of heralding the Messiah was being fulfilled according to the prophecy, which told of one who would serve as a front runner, a forerunner for the Messiah. The Lord spoke through the prophet Malachi, saying, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And Zechariah tells us of how John will give witness to God's coming to his people in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Primarily, John will give knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of their sins. So John's task was to go before Jesus to declare that salvation had come and to encourage repentance for the kingdom of God was at hand. And this is precisely what John did in his ministry. He proclaimed the kingdom of God had come and he offered a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now we should see here in Zechariah's song that there is an intimate connection between salvation and the forgiveness of sins what was the messiah coming to save man from some might have thought it was political oppression but Zechariah indicates otherwise the salvation is spiritual in nature it is from punishment from their own destruction from the wrath of god from sin and death how then must man be saved? And the answer is through the forgiveness of sins. For forgiveness of sins is a precondition to peace with God. If man were going to be saved, then he must be reconciled in his relationship with God, which required his sin to be dealt with, which stood as a barrier between God and man. The Messiah that John preceded was coming to make this forgiveness possible. So even as John proclaimed this salvation through the forgiveness of sins, it was Jesus who would bring God's people into it. And we begin to realize here that the focus of these verses isn't really about John at all. 
They direct our attention to John, but only in so much as he will give witness to who the coming Messiah will be. The song then, in many ways, is symbolic of the whole of John's life. It's a life lived completely surrendered to God's purpose of heralding Christ. So more than telling us about John, Zechariah tells us about the coming Messiah, Jesus, and the salvation that comes through him. And Zechariah presents here an amazing truth for the reason for this entire plan of salvation through the forgiveness of sins to which John's life gives testimony. Why was God providing this salvation? And here it is laid out for us in verse 78. Listen. Because of the tender mercy of our God. The whole thing hinges on God's tender mercy. And these two words, tender mercy, deserve our attention. They are well worth stopping for and asking and seeking to understand what they tell us of God and his character. This is what Zechariah is saying here. It isn't simply because God had promised his people something that this plan of salvation is carried out. It isn't just that God remembers his covenant that he has made and determines to fulfill his promises in order to be faithful to his word. God is faithful to his word, but we shouldn't understand what is taking place here as some impersonal business deal as some sort of mechanical, robotic response of God to make good on his promises. God acts to fulfill his covenant, but he acts in accordance with his tender mercy. It isn't just mercy, giving something that's not deserved. It is tender mercy. This word translated tender here is the same word often translated compassionate in other places in Scripture. It means from the bowels. And this might seem strange to speak of something coming from God's gut, but what it's trying to convey to us is that it is from the very depth of God's being that His mercy flows. God wants us as much as our little, feeble, finite brains can handle to understand the nature of this mercy from which we are offered salvation. It comes from the very heart of God. What we have in Jesus Christ is a concrete example of God's love for us. It is an expression of God's affection. And this means that God does not provide salvation in his son Jesus Christ begrudgingly. There is no reluctance on God's part to save. The salvation he gives flows freely and unreservedly from his love. There is no impure motive here because there is no impurity in God. The great Charles Spurgeon puts it, into perspective for us when he says, there is an exceeding melody to my ear as well as to my heart with the word tender. Mercy is music 
Tender mercy is the most exquisite form of it, especially to a broken heart. To one who is despondent and despairing, this word is life from the dead. Dearly beloved, don't then just write it off. Write off salvation as something which God is obliged to do because he promised he would. Don't apply to him our imperfections. Sometimes we make promises that we fulfill begrudgingly, don't we? Well, I told my coworker I was going to take care of that report. I guess I need to do it. I don't have time to do the report. I don't want to do the report, but I want to be good to my word. I don't want to be proven dishonest or undependable. So I do what I said I would do, but with bitterness in my heart, murmuring under my breath the whole time. How about when a good friend comes asking for our help to move? Let's be honest, all of us cringe a little when we find out a friend or relative is moving because we know we will probably be asked to help. And when our phone rings, we say, sure, I can help, just tell me when. We make promises we don't look forward to fulfilling, don't we? And we even make promises to those who are nearest and dearest to our hearts that we begrudgingly fulfill. Some of you told your spouse you were going to help decorate for Christmas, didn't you? And you did it, right? But you didn't enjoy it. Don't lie. Remember, nothing is hidden from the Lord. And perhaps you could say, but I did it because I have a sense of responsibility to my spouse. I have a duty to my spouse. I want to be faithful to the covenant I made in marriage. And and I don't want to belittle that sense of obligation. But God doesn't provide salvation out of a sense of obligation. He saves because of a tender mercy that flows from his very being. It is who he is, a loving and merciful God. So please don't mistake the fulfillment of God's promises as something which is being done begrudgingly. God did not withhold anything from us by giving us his only son, and God is not murmuring under his breath when he sends his son into the world to take on human flesh. And Jesus Christ isn't murmuring under his breath when he makes his way to the cross and dies a criminal's death. No, 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 no. In love, in love, God sends his son and Jesus Christ works out our salvation in divine joy. Beloved, I hope that this good news of great joy gives us confidence in the salvation that God offers us in Jesus Christ. And what makes it all the more astounding is who he has come to save. The righteous, those who are honoring him and glorifying him. No. Zacharias sings here that John gives the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sin. Salvation comes to the sinner. Salvation is for the sinner. In other words, it is those who have stood in opposition to God that Jesus comes to save. It's for those who had rejected him and rebelled against him that Jesus would lay down his life. It is for the prodigal, the prostitute, the pickpocket, the prisoner. It's for 
you and me. So not only did God not destroy those who had dishonored, defied, and disregarded him, but he revealed his tender mercy toward them. Rather than responding in judgment and condemnation, he offered salvation through the forgiveness of sins, a free gift of his great love given to those most unworthy. This is the amazing grace of our God. And it tells us that despite our sin and rebellion, God did not provide salvation to us begrudgingly, but freely and generously and lovingly. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. In his great love, he leaves his throne in heaven where he reigns in glory and is unceasingly praised and worshiped by all the heavenly host he lays aside his power and privilege and he takes on human flesh to enter into our mess he becomes weak and poor for us he becomes a servant even unto death to work out our salvation Spurgeon poignantly asks what What but tender mercy, hearty mercy, intense mercy could bring the great God to visit us so closely that he actually assumed our nature. Kings may visit their subjects, but they do not think of taking upon themselves their poverty, sickness, or sorrow. They could not if they would. This were more than we could expect from them. But our divine Lord, when he came hither, came into our flesh. He veiled his Godhead in a robe of our inferior clay. And this is what Zachariah says that God will do. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. God didn't just look down upon the miserable state of the world and those he had created in his image and pity us from afar, feel sorry for us from heaven. Look at all those poor souls down there, miserable sinners. Look at the horrible mess they have made. What a disaster, what a shame. They are just wretched. No, the heavenly light descended. He doesn't just tell us from heaven of his love. He condescends to us. He comes to dwell with us. Why? To reveal his love by providing salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, as Zechariah sings in verse 79. He came to shine light into our darkness. And John gives witness to this light, doesn't he? The apostle John in his gospel states, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. John comes to point us to Jesus who is the light of the world that people sitting in darkness might believe in him and receive the heavenly light. And so to all those who sit in darkness of sin and death, God comes providing illumination in Jesus Christ. 
And this metaphor of darkness and light might perhaps be in ways lost on us who live with the modern convenience of electricity. We are rarely in complete darkness. I was reminded of this last night as I walked through my house after everyone was in bed and all the lights were off. But if you are anything like me, then you have night lights all over your house. Even with the lights off, there's still enough light for me to see to not kill myself on the toys left on the floor by my beloved children. But John Calvin, who lived in a different age, helps to provide a little perspective here. At night, he says, we are like prisoners. Our senses are dulled. We cannot take a step without stumbling or running into something unless long acquaintance has made us familiar with the path. When darkness falls, it is as if we are in limbo. We undergo a kind of burial. We have no way of knowing. We see no one, and no one sees us. No one can assist us if trouble strikes. In the dark, we are more likely to get a kick in the stomach than a helping hand. And this is what sin does. It clouds our vision. It makes it impossible to see clearly. We are left to our own limited resources, groping around, hoping we can run into something that we are searching for, but it's hard to even know what we are searching for when we can't see. In the darkness, we are hopeless and helpless. In the light, though, everything becomes clear. We can see what is before us. We can find our purpose. We can discern the path that we are to walk. We are able to avoid hazards and move decisively forward to where we want to go. And so it is in the light of Jesus Christ. It is in light of who Jesus Christ is, of how he shines the glory of God, that not only do we see who God is, but we also see ourselves more clearly. Our true condition is revealed. By his light, we know his love, but our sin and brokenness is also laid bare. And we had no idea how bad off we really were, dead in our sins, sitting in our own filth and shame. Maybe for those of you who have placed faith in Jesus Christ, you can recall when the scales fell off of your eyes and you could see the perfection of Jesus Christ in your own imperfection. You could see the righteousness of Jesus Christ in your own wretchedness. You could see in Jesus Christ the love of God on full display even as your own waywardness and rebellion against God was revealed. But Zachariah sings that Jesus comes to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus does not leave God's people in darkness. He shines his perpetual light as the prophet Isaiah foretells when he says, The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. 
Jesus guides us by his light into the way of true life. He brings us through the narrow gate and reveals to us a life pleasing to God. He shows us the path of true joy and peace and righteousness. He brings us out of darkness and into right relationship with God by the forgiveness of sins offered to us by way of his blood poured out on the cross. So let's not think for one moment that salvation offered by way of the forgiveness of sins is offered begrudgingly. But we also shouldn't translate God's tender mercy to mean that God simply overlooks our sin. That he treats our sins as though they are of no consequence. That in his love, he spares us from having to see ourselves as we truly are. What the gospel declares to us is that God came to deal with our sin once and for all by taking the punishment of our sin on himself that we might be freed from its power and that we are called in Christ no longer to live in our sins, to sit in darkness and death, but to repent and to put our sins to death. And yet there are many who believe that the message of Christmas is that God sends his son to declare universal salvation. Salvation and the forgiveness of sins gets translated practically as don't worry about your sins. God doesn't mind them. Jesus came that you can have peace and joy and love of God while you continue to do as you please. What Zechariah tells us here, though, is that in Jesus Christ, sins are not only forgiven, but are confronted. John the Baptist's life gives witness to this reality. He prepares the way for the coming of Jesus Christ and gives witness to him by calling people out of their sins. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn away from your sin. Turn to God. Make straight your path. This is not a message that the world takes kindly to, though, is it? And we know how the world reacted to John. John was not afraid to speak the truth of sin, even to the most powerful. And when John tells King Herod Antipas that he is sinning by taking his brother's wife Herodias as a mistress, Herod imprisons John. And then fulfilling an oath to Herodias' daughter, he has John beheaded. There is a message here about the way in which the world deals with sin. Kill the messenger. We don't want to hear about our sin. It was this way in Jesus' day. It is this way today. The world still hates those who give witness to the light. And rather than rejoicing that God has sent a Savior, one who by grace delivers us from the power of sin, the world rejoices instead in its sin. It isn't just that sin is to be tolerated, no. It's to be celebrated because the world has loved the darkness and hated the light. But dearly beloved, Zachariah tells us that the reason for this season is this. God's tender mercy displayed for us and offered to us in Jesus Christ. And it means that we shouldn't think lightly of salvation which he brings. It isn't impersonal. God acts in his great love for you and me. 
In his great love and mercy, God reaches down to us to bring us up to himself. So it isn't enough to know this salvation in abstract terms. This isn't just heady theology. This isn't just truth to think about. It is truth that must be believed with everything that we are and embraced in the depths of our hearts. God's love given to us in the forgiveness of sins is to be experienced. This is the knowledge to which Zechariah's songs speak. And John Calvin said, we must understand that God has turned toward us and has chosen us to belong to his family. Until we are convinced of this, we may contemplate God's mercy as often as we like. It will merely hang limply in the air. We must grasp it and hold it within us. It must take root in our hearts. It must be like a treasure enclosed in a good conscience, to use Paul's image. So our aim should be to know God not only as he is in relation to all mankind, but as he is toward us who have his special promise whom he has accepted and made members of his church, who by baptism are joined to the body of his son and who can therefore call him father. And it isn't because there is anything that merits God's goodness toward us that we have received this gift from him. Zechariah makes that much clear. Everything that Zechariah says here destroys any illusion that we have that we can by our merit stand righteous before God or be deserving of his goodness toward us. No, we are sinners who sit in darkness without Christ. And this is the very nature of mercy. It is completely undeserved. The only thing we bring to our salvation is our sin our hearts then should swell with gratitude to the one who opens his heart to us, his inmost self, and demonstrates, as Calvin says, that the sum total of all the pity and affection which mortals might have for one another is as nothing compared with the greatness of his mercy which reaches down to the depths of hell and rescues those in prison there don't miss it Zechariah's song shouts that God's kindness toward us is meant to lead us to repentance it's meant to direct our wayward hearts home to God so brothers and sisters as we approach the manger this Christmas And as we look upon the Christ child, I pray that our hearts would melt before him. The one who came to die that we might have life and that our raging against God would cease, that our determination to persist in our sin would end. Jesus has come to guide you to peace. I urge you then, Don't fail to receive the salvation that is freely offered. The time is now. The kingdom is at hand. Lay hold of the salvation that God gives us by his tender mercy, by placing faith in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Turn to God in faith and be forgiven. Amen.
Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your tender mercy. We thank you for sending your only begotten Son in your great love. We thank you for the salvation freely given in the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we know that the night is far gone and the day is near. Help us. Help us by your Spirit to lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe. Using the Nicene Creed, the Christmas Creed, as it has been called. Dearly beloved Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in one God. 